Let me pray. Father God, I do thank you for your goodness. I thank you, Lord, that we have sang so much truth today, that death is overcome, that Christ is Lord, that you are victorious. And as we come to Revelation this morning, as we deal with with the, the, the outcome of your victory and the implications of that, help us to soften our hearts. Lord, uh, we read about people who harden their hearts in today's passage. Help that not to be us. Let us soften our hearts so we can receive what you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a, a young guy from Lurgan won the lottery and he decided he wanted to show off. So he bought the very best sports car he could find in the area, a Ferrari V8. And it's one of the most expensive cars he could find. It was 200000 Pounds, and he takes it for a spin around Craig Avon, and he's zooming along, and he stops for a red light. An old man, about ninety, on a rusty moped, pulls up alongside him, and looks at this fancy, shiny car. Looks at it up and down, and says, "Here, that's a pretty nice car you've got there, son." Uh, and the young man replies, "Yep, it's a 2018 Ferrari V8. It cost me two hundred thousand pounds." That's a lot of money, says the old man. Why does it cost so much? Because this car can do over 200 miles an hour, says the young man. The moped driver asks, do you mind if I have a look inside? No problem. And so the old man sticks his head in the window and he's looking around and he's saying, that's a beautiful car. It's amazing. Look at the interior. This is incredible. And then he, he, he pulls his head out. And just as he does that, the lights change from red to green. And the guy decides, I'm going to show this guy on the moped just how fast this car can go. And off he goes. 30 seconds later, he's doing 100 miles an hour. He is flying. But suddenly in his rear view mirror, he sees a dot that seems to be getting closer he slows down and whoosh past him flies the guy in the moped what on earth could be going faster than my Ferrari the young man asks himself it couldn't be the guy in the moped how could a moped outrun a Ferrari so he speeds up 100 miles, 120 miles, 150 miles. Vroom! Goes past the guy in the moped. He's feeling quite proud of himself. Till a few minutes later, he sees this dot coming behind him. And the moped flies past him. And he is furious at this stage. So he cranks up the engine. He puts down the foot. He brings it up to 200 miles an hour. Vroom! Flies down through Craig Offen. Trying to avoid the roundabouts. I realize that you're all thinking that. And... Uh, he overtakes the old man on the moped, but again, within a few seconds, he sees the old man coming up right behind him, getting closer, getting closer, getting closer, and smash! The old man smashes the back of his car, demolishing the rear end. The young man jumps out of his Ferrari, runs to the mangled old man, land beside his crushed moped on the road, and says, oh my goodness, are you all right? Is there anything I can do for you? And the old man whispers in a raspy breath, unhook my braces from your rear view or from your side view mirror (laughs) appearances aren't always what they seem sometimes there's more going on than meets the eye and isn't that what we've been saying again and again as we've been studying this great book of Revelation, that there's more to life than meets the eye. That there's a physical, visible, tangible world that we see all around us. And that is where we focus, but there's also an invisible spiritual world. And the two aren't separate by some great gulf, but they actually overlap, they intersect, and they interact with each other. That the things that we experience physically, visibly, have often a spiritual dimension and a spiritual 
manifestation behind them. At the start of the first century, the church is undergoing severe pressure and persecution. And there's an old guy called John, the Apostle John, the one who Jesus loved. He's about 90 at this stage. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos because of his faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. And he has this apocalypse, this revelation, this unveiling, where the curtain, if you like, is pulled back and he gets to see the invisible spiritual world. He gets to see why things are happening as they are. And he sees Jesus in all his glory and majesty. He sees God's, God in all his sovereignty, seated securely on his throne, ruling human history. And then he saw this scroll with seven seals. And we began to look at the judgments, the disasters of what's called, most of you will have heard, the Great Tribulation. Or as, one, uh, as David Pawson calls it, the Big Trouble. Uh, the big trouble, the great tribulation, as God's judgment is worked out on earth. And these two kingdoms clash. The kingdom of, of God and the kingdom of this world controlled by Satan. And as these two kingdoms clash, God's people are caught in the middle and they feel the intense pressure. Just like when anything comes together, when a vice comes together there's, and something's in the middle, the, the tighter it comes together, the more pressure there is that the Christians are, are feeling suffering and persecution and pain and even death. And so we've had the seven seals broken. We need to remember that in Revelation, we can't read it from a Western 21st century mindset. We need to read it from a, 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 an, a, a, an Eastern mindset, a Jewish mindset. And when we read what happens in chapter 7 following chapter 6, and then we go on to chapters 8 to 11, we just assume that it all happens linearly, that, that 7 follows 6, 8 follows 7, 9 follows 8. And that's the way we think about things. But Hebrew thinking wasn't so much linear. It was cyclical. And... Basically, when we see something, we come full circle and we're back at the start and we see it again from a different perspective. So as I said last week, we read about the tribulation and all the seals are broken in chapter 6. And the question, if you remember, that we were left with at the end of chapter 6 was, who can stand? Remember? Where at the end I got emotional and I talked about my friend in a wheelchair who's still standing. In the midst of cancer, in the midst of not being able to use his leg, he is standing. Because standing in the midst of tribulation and suffering is not physical, it is a spiritual thing. And, and, and that was the question we were left with, who can stand at the end of chapter 6? And we saw, well, actually in chapter 7, the ones who can stand are the ones who before the tribulation are sealed. We talked about the seal that God puts on their forehead. It's a seal of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit living within us. That God's Spirit comes to mark us, to empower us, to equip us, and to protect us from what lies ahead. That if you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you. And so we have these different angles. And the way I, I describe it is sometimes it's like watching a football match on BBC and you've watched the first half on BBC but then you realize that there was stuff that you missed or stuff that you maybe were called out of the room and so you switch over to plus one on ITV and they're showing the same match but they're showing it from the start and from a different angle and so you get to see the whole thing again but from a completely different perspective that's a little bit of what's going on in Revelation that, that, that we're seeing the same things over and over again, but we're just seeing them from a different perspective. 
We're going to see that as we come to the next series of judgments called the Seven Trumpets. The technical name is called Progressive Parallelism. Feel free to impress your friends over lunch with that today. If you're out with some friends from the Baptist Church, say, what do you think about the progressive parallelism we find parallelism we find in the book of Revelation? And they'll think, I, I thought you were Church of Ireland. And, uh, <laughs> progressive parallelism. In other words, we have parallel sets of things going on with four sets of seven. We have seven letters, seven seals, Seven trumpets, seven bowls, Christ return. That's the way we would view it from a Western 21st century mindset because that's how we read it in the letter. This is actually how it happens. Seven letters to the churches undergoing the tribulation. Seven seals which are opened, God's judgment from one perspective. Seven trumpets, judgment from another perspective. Seven bowls of God's wrath from a different perspective. And then Christ's return. Does that help you? understand that that because it can look like there's 21 judgments going on when actually when you read them and study them they are actually happening at the same time but from different perspectives so we're watching the same thing from four angles and we're going to switch channel again this week last week we saw the tribulation from the church's perspective we saw how the church is being pressured and persecuted and squeezed and, 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 and they're going through a difficult time and they cry out to God for justice and he seals them and there's a great multitude of them worshipping the lamb. Remember from every tribe, tongue and nation, um, they were worshipping the lamb in heaven. That's what we saw last week. This week we're going to switch from BBC to ITV plus one and we're going to watch it from the world's perspective this time not from the church's perspective but from the world's perspective what while we're experiencing as christians the sale of the spirit and the worship of heaven and the jews 144,000, are are being marked if that's specifically jews what is the world experience and what's going on to those who don't know god during this time and we're going to find that they're opposed to him that they're hard-hearted and the rebellion against him. But before we start that, we start Revelation 8 with a period of silence. Look at verses 1 to 5 in Revelation 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, some nasty theologian about 30 years ago said that shows that there's no women in heaven because there wouldn't be silence. I didn't say it. I'm saying some... I rebuke that theologian, but I'm just saying that's what they said. That is not my perspective, okay? I don't want any emails. Feminazis. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the people went up before God from the angel's hand. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth and there, became, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So up until this point there's been screaming, there's been chaos, there's been noise, there's been mess, there's been devastation and then shh! There's silence. Complete silence. For half an hour. Shh, heaven goes silent. What's going on? It's a picture of the, the prayers and the cries and the tears and the worship 
and the devotion of God's people rising from the earth. And God says to the angels, and he says to the saints, shh, I want to hear what my people down there are saying. It's like God inhales these prayers. They're described as incense. It's like he goes, I just want to to breathe in the prayers of my people. And what happens next is in direct response to the prayers of God's people. And my point is simply this. God hears prayer. God answers prayer. Prayer shapes and influences human history. And I know as Christians we believe in prayer. We're a church that believes in prayer. If you go into the prayer meeting before we gather here on a Sunday, you'll know that we believe in prayer. It's packed out. But I wonder how many of us really understand the impact prayer makes. I wonder how many of us really understand when we come to encounter tonight that when we pray, God moves. God hears prayer. God puts all of the resources of the universe at our our disposal when we pray. He summons his angels in response to your prayers. Prayer is something I struggle with. I don't know about you. Most Christians I talk to find prayer hard. Some people have a particular gift for prayer. My wife is one of them. She, she is a, a, there's nothing she loves more than going and spending two hours with, with God in the evenings or whatever. Maybe that's just to get away from me. I, I don't know, maybe she's up there on her iPad or something like that. But no, no, she is. She loves to pray. She gets, she sets, and she's not a morning person. She sets her alarm early to pray. Um, I struggle with prayer. Anybody else find prayer hard? Be honest. Like, I do. My mind wanders. I pick up my phone and I start looking at, you know, checking emails or going on Facebook. And I just, or I start hearing that dog next door barking. And I, within five minutes, I'm thinking about how I can poison that dog. And, and, and I just, I'm like, then I'm repenting. And then I'm like, but it's really annoying. And I struggle with prayer. And I think part of the reason we struggle with prayer most is, well, there's twofold. One, we don't fully understand the power of prayer. If you knew just what was at your disposal, you would pray more. And the second reason is we struggle with prayer is this. Satan does understand the power of prayer. And he hates it when you pray. And so he will distract you. He will discourage you. He will get, do anything to stop God's people praying. The first meeting to always go in any church and the least attended meeting is the prayer meeting. Because Satan hates prayer. Or a Tory put it like this. Prayer is the key that unlocks all the storehouses of God's infinite grace and power. All that God is and all that God does is at the disposal of prayer. But we must use the key. Prayer can do anything God can do. As, and as God can do anything, prayer is omnipotent. Prayer is omnipotent. It is all-powerful. If we could get this, if we could only understand that prayer releases God's power, that prayer is the primary means that God has given you and I as his people to change things here on this earth. That God has given us prayer to make the impossible possible. 
to move mountains, to bring heaven to earth, to bring the invisible into the visible. There are things that will happen if you pray. And there are things that won't happen if you don't pray. And as Christians, we've become so fatalistic. We've become hey, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. If the Lord wants it done, he'll do it whether I pray or not. I want to tell you that that is not true. I believe God is sovereign. Absolutely sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. He can override our wills. But God, in his absolute sovereignty, has chosen to set up the universe with particular laws and particular things that, 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 that he has put in place. And one of them is prayer. That when you pray, he hears and he moves and he responds. And he hears your prayers, he answers your prayers, and he moves in accordance to your prayers. John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, said this, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? You know that Wesley wasn't a Calvinist. Let me put this in Calvinist terms. God has ordained in his sovereignty to do nothing except in believing, in response to believing prayer. Not everything is set in stone, folks. Not everything in your life is predetermined. Not everything that God wills for your life is going to happen. We have some strange theology that we've picked up along the way. That, well, if God wants it to happen, it's just going to happen. There's some things that God wants to happen in your life that don't happen. For all sorts of reasons, it can be through disobedience and sin. But sometimes it can be just through lack of prayer. That God has resources, he has things in heaven that he wants to bring into your life, but he wants you to pray them down. He wants you to come before him and trust him because prayer is trust. Prayer is faith. And lack of prayer is pride and arrogance. It's saying, I can do this without God. People's lives are changed. History is changed through prayer. Jack Hayford says this, you and I can help decide which of these two things, blessing or cursing, happens on earth. We will determine whether God's goodness is released towards specific situations or whether the power of sin and Satan is permitted to prevail. Prayer is the determining factor. If we don't, he won't. But the flip side of that is true. If we will, he will. One writer says this, an old writer, William Cooper, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his knees. And so God moves here and he acts in direct response. He says, shh, I want to hear the prayers of my people. And he hears and look at what they pray. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. The saints are crying out for justice. They're crying out for God to move. They're crying out for God to act. They're saying, God, do something on our behalf. Stop what's going on. Again, to us, that might not sound very Christian. Basically, they're saying, God, go judge them. God, go get them. And we think, well, that doesn't sound very Jesus-like. That's frankly because we've absolutely no idea what real tribulation, persecution, and suffering for the gospel is. If you were to live in some places in the Middle East today, which are controlled by radical Muslim groups, something like ISIS, and you're a parent, your 12-year-old son has been shot, your husband has had his head chopped off, you're homeless and on the run with your three daughters, you're pursued by men who have only one goal, and that is destroy you because you follow Jesus. 
you might understand what it means to cry to God for justice. For most of us, tribulation is not getting a parking space on a rainy day. It's our pizza being 20 minutes late. It's a bill coming in much we hadn't expected, or it's a bad hair day. That's what we call tribulation. Real tribulation happens in the world. It happens in places like Nigeria, in places like Joss in Nigeria, where people come in and they kidnap your 13-year-old daughter and they take her off and they marry her off to some 45, 60-year-old mom, whatever he is, and he rapes her and has his way with her while you're left wondering where your daughter is will she ever come home if that is you and you're a parent your cry will be god judge them god get them and so we need to understand this in context that when they're crying out for justice and judgment it is because they need god to move on their behalf because they are being so brutally persecuted and the pressure is so intense and so prayer is potent as the cries and the prayers of god's people reach heaven He hears, he responds, he moves, he acts in judgment. But as we will see, always with the intention of showing grace and mercy at the first sign of repentance. Look at verse 6 with me, with the warning signs. Verse 6. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. So we had seven seals on the scroll. Now we have seven angels and seven Trumpets, And each time they blow the trumpet, it releases a judgment on God's enemies. I don't have time to go into each of them individually. Don't read them to your children tonight before they go to sleep. Children's books never really have Revelation 8 and 9. They don't have a lot of Revelation. They'll have the last chapter in it. Um, the, the, because there's, it's pretty nasty stuff. There's, there's, as, as the trumpets are blown, there's hail and fire, there's chaos and destruction, there's pollution and pestilence, there's darkness and death. I think we even see a nuclear, a nuclear explosion if you read um, into it. It says a star from heaven and, and smoke coming up and, and the, because of that the waters were polluted. I think we're going to see some sort of nuclear disaster happen. And then in chapter 9, we get to these two images of armies side by side. If you go to the next slide there, we don't have time to go through them. But the first army is this, this, this locus. And it represents the, the demonic being released to, let me see, to do what the demonic do on earth. At the minute there is some restraint. The Bible talks about the abyss. The Bible, and we'll see this throughout Revelation, that there is a place where, where God has, has said, actually, your demons are restricted there to Satan. Your demons, there's, there's an amount of demons that are so evil that they have no authority here on earth. But there comes a point in judgment where God lifts the lid and says, okay, people are going to get what they want. If they want evil, if they want demons, if they want the satanic, I'm going to give them what they want. And we're going to see that the the demonic is released on earth all hell literally breaks loose but only for a time and only to a limited extent then there's a physical army it talks about next slide talks about the euphrates release the four angels who are bound at the great river euphrates and for the people reading this the river euphrates was as far east as they could see okay They couldn't see any further east than the river Euphrates. And they see an army, and they're very specific here, of 
100 million people. That's twice times 10,000 times 10,000. I'll just, I'll save you the maths. Uh, and and, and uh, most numbers in Revelation are symbolic. In fact, nearly all of them are. But this one seems to be quite specific because look at what John points out. I heard their number. Two million soldiers at the very far east. When this was written 2,000 years ago, there is not one place in the world that could have had two million soldiers in the Far East. I will leave you to think about today whether there are any countries in the very Far East that could have 200 million troops. But that's what John sees. He sees 200 million troops. He sees the demonic being released. What are we to make of all these judgments? Is God angry? Is he just throwing a hissy fit? Is he just raging and just venting and pouring out all his anger and getting revenge on all the wicked people? No, judgment for God is never an end in itself. Revelation is not primarily about, nor does it end in judgment. It is about God putting things right. God restoring his creation, which has been marred and devastated by rebellion and sin. It is God acting with perfect justice and righteousness and mercy and love. And the ultimate ending is always good. And I was thinking about this this week, and I was talking to somebody about this. And even just thinking again about cancer. When a cancer has riddled a body, you cannot put a stick and plaster on it. And that's what we do in our culture. We know things aren't right. We know that there's something fundamentally flawed with our creation and our world. We know there's sin and evil and sickness. And we stick a stick and plaster on it. And we bury our heads in the sun. And God says no. That it is so bad. It is so ingrained. It is so corrupt that actually the only way to clear it out looks brutal to you, looks terrible to you, but I need to get rid of what's at the core of the earth. And the only way to do that is judgment. The only way to do that is to lance it out. It is to root it out. And sometimes that will look in a way that doesn't seem pleasant to you. But I have good at the end of it. I have a purpose in it. And I am going somewhere with it. And I will never destroy everything. If you read through chapters 8 and 9, it's always a third is destroyed, two thirds not destroyed. In other words, God always fears on the side of mercy. One third destroyed, two thirds not destroyed. He always makes sure that there's more goodness than wrath poured out. So what about these seven judgments? What do trumpets mean? These seven trumpets that we see here. When we look at scripture, what do trumpets mean? We interpret scripture with scripture. Look at what Joel 2 says. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. So blow a trumpet, sound the alarm. Ezekiel, he sees the sword coming towards the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, the blood will be on their own heads. Trumpets are about warning. When a trumpet blasts, it's designed to do one thing. Get people's attention. Say, wake up. Look here. Do something. 
Watch out. Something major is about to happen and you need to respond to it. These seven judgments preceded by seven trumpets are basically God's warning signs to humans, to creation, to say God is shouting at you to get your attention. Stop going the way you're going. Stop going down that road. Turn around. Repent. It's not too late. There's still time. Yesterday, I, for the last two days... And most of us was full of this. Those warning signs that come on in your car. And some of them you ignore and some of them you don't. Not right. Like some of them you're like, don't know what that means. The oil one came on in my car the last few days. And so I went last night and got oil. If I ignored that for too long, the engine would pack in. So when we see a warning sign, we, it's, it's telling us something needs attended to. But let's, let's take that a bit further. Imagine right here in this church, the fire alarm goes off. Now most of us, have become pretty immune to fire alarms. Let's be honest, haven't we? Like, you hear a fire alarm and you don't exactly run out of the building. So imagine a fire alarm goes off here. It's a warning. There's a fire. Get out. We all just sit here because we're enjoying the sermon too much. And we're fine. You know, then someone comes in from next door. Somebody comes in from the hall and says, actually, there is a fire. You need to get out. And we're like, you know what? Craig is on a blinder this morning. We're just chilled out. Those seats are comfy. We've got communion later. Some of us are looking forward to the bread and wine. You know, we're just like, just leave us alone. Then someone, then, then, then someone else comes in and shouts, look, you're going to burn if you don't get out. And we are like, go away. And we cover our ears. And we're like, you're being a nuisance. Just clear off. And the fire's getting hotter and the flames are getting closer. And eventually people come in, Christine and the team come in, and they start trying to drag us out. And we're fighting back at them saying, no, we want to stay here. And Christine's punching us and, and Catherine's punching us. And the youth guys are in and they're trying to drag us out. And we're punching them back and we're saying, no, we're staying here. We're not going anywhere. And eventually we burn to death. Were those shouting at us and those warning us, were they being unloving? Were they acting in anger against us? Is it their fault if we burn? Of course not. They're actually being the most loving they can be. They're giving us warning after warning, but our own rebellion and resistance causes us to refuse to listen. God's will is for every person to repent. Second Peter 3.9 tells us that God is patient wanting all to repent. He wants everyone to be saved. Everyone to turn around. All they need to, he wants everyone to hear the alarm and get ready before the fire. And he will do whatever it takes. He will do whatever it takes, even if it means for some people pain and suffering. C.S. Lewis says this, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Is God trying to get your attention right now about something? Is God trying to speak to you about something, but you're ignoring him? And he whispers, and then he speaks, and then he shouts, and you keep covering your ears, I would say to be very, very careful to ignore the warnings of God. 
God will do whatever it takes to get our attention, not to punish us, but because he loves us so much and he wants us saved. He wants to draw us to himself. And that's what these trumpets are about. They're warning signs. They're alarm signs. Stop, cliff edge, danger ahead. Turn around, change direction. You don't have to fall into the abyss. But even after all these warnings, people don't listen. Look at 20 to 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and any religion that, is, that causes people to worship anything other or anyone other than the true God in Jesus Christ is a religion backed by demons. Idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that cannot see. They'd rather worship idols. They'd rather worship material things. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality. That word is pornea. It's sexual immorality in all its forms. But in today's 21st century society, we can see how people will not repent of their pornea, their, their, their addiction to pornea or their thefts. Hearts, hearts are hard. Rebellion is deep. And people are saying, we are going to go our own way. And God, we do not care what you say. We're going to resist you because we do what we want to do. And you can warn us. And that's why the Bible says in so many places, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And maybe you're here this morning. And God has spoken to you. And you're not a Christian. And you keep putting it off. And you keep putting it off. And you keep saying one day. And can I plead with you, do not harden your heart. Because that is what you're doing. And the more you harden your heart, the more a callus builds up on your heart. And the harder it is to say yes to Jesus in the end. Please do not harden your heart. Heed the warnings. You'd think God would just give up and let them all burn in hell. But he's too gracious, he's too kind, he's too compassionate, he's too loving. People need to hear the truth, they need their eyes open, they need to turn from sin. And that's where we come in. That's where his people come in. That's where the church come in. That's where hope come in. Look at chapter 10 with me. Verses 1 and 2 and then 9 to 11. Then I saw another mighty angel. We're getting there. He says by faith. And then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach stomach turned sour. Then I was told you must prophesy again about many people's nations, languages, and kings. I'm a picky eater, very picky eater. See George there. Probably just about the only person who's as picky, maybe more picky than I am. And I, I, I love being around picky eaters because basically we're carnivores, aren't we? We just meat. Just give us steak, give us chicken, we're fine. I, I don't eat vegetables. I eat peppers. Any others? No, that's about it. Baked beans. Um, <laughs> in small doses. Let me make that clear. I don't eat cheese. I eat cheesecake, but not cheese. I've never had pizza without, well, I had pizza without cheese. Is that real pizza? That's a question for another day. I don't eat fish apart from out of the chippy once in a while. 
I, I basically am just fussy. I, I, my poor wife. I, um, so probably, but once when I, I was in America years ago, I ate squid, calamari. I know, I know. It was rubbery. It didn't taste great. I haven't eaten it again since. Some of you have probably eaten all sorts of things. Anybody ever eaten dog? Like a do- please, I mean, if you've cooked a dog in Craig Alvin, I don't mean it. I mean, if you've been in, like, Korea, okay, or somewhere, dog is a bit of a delicacy. Anybody ever eaten dog? Be honest, tell the truth. Anybody ever eaten frogs? Legs? Yeah. Oh, my goodness me. Yeah. Okay. Anybody ever eaten, like, uh, I'm trying to think. What's, give me something else gross that maybe somebody's eaten. Snails. Snails. Yeah. Snails. Chicken's feet. Chicken's feet, yeah, wow, yeah. In some countries, again, they're quite a delicacy. Um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, on them and they eat all sorts of things there. Um, haggis, yeah, I am not touching that. Tripe, even the name. If they called it something nicer, you know. Like... I don't know how you would rename tripe to make it appealing on the, sh- on the shelves of Tesco, you know, especially value tripe, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yep, 50p for a big lump of tripe. Um, guess what's for Sunday lunch? But this angel shows up here and he says, eat this scroll. He gives him paper. And most of us when we were kids, didn't we? we yeah, most of us when we were kids, we had, we had paper. Um, We've probably all done something, but this isn't any paper. I was going to swallow it as an example, but it just wasn't going down. Um, and the angel t- says this, it tastes sweet when you put it in your mouth, but it will turn your stomach sour when you swallow it. This scroll is the word of God he's talking about. It's the message of what God has done and is going to do. It is God's message. This is unfolding of God's plan through history. It's the declaration that Jesus is coming back. It's the warnings. And John the Apostle, who, ha- who gets the scroll, represents the people of God. He represents us. He represents the church. And so the first thing he is told to do is to eat the scroll. In other words, eat the word of God. Consume the word of God. Be nourished by the word of God. Let the word of God fill you. And as you let the word of God fill you, it is sweet. Psalm 119 says this, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. To the faithful Christian, God's word is sweet. It speaks of God's goodness, his grace, his promises, his kindness, his faithfulness, what he has in store. God's word is sweet. So what's this better sour language about? To be honest, I think that's the stuff we read in here that we struggle with. It's the stuff we're studying. I've got my old Bible here stuck together with duct tape, but I love this Bible. There's stuff in here we struggle with. The stuff we've been studying the last few weeks, I think that's the sour bit. It's the bits that we'd rather weren't in here. It's the bits that when we're evangelizing to our friends, we happen to leave out. It's the bits that, bits that you're not likely to hear from a lot of preachers. Yes, God wants you to have your best life now, but he also doesn't want you to spend eternity in hell. They leave the second bit out. And the way to have your best life now is to prepare for the future. It's the bits that we water down 
It's the bits that we twist and manipulate because we want to live how we want to live. It's the bits that we want to be popular in the world. And so we say, well, the Bible doesn't really say that. Or it does say that, but it doesn't really mean that. And we twist and we distort scripture to say something that it just doesn't say. Or we say that it doesn't say something that it says very clearly. William Booth, you've heard me say this quote before, founder of the Salvation Army, said this about 130 years ago. The chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. And that's what we're seeing in much of the church today. We're seeing a truncated gospel, a feel-good gospel, a hyper-grace gospel. And I am all about grace, but grace only means something if it saves us from something. (laughs) The most beautiful diamond has to be set against a black cloth. And the gospel only really means something to us if we know what it's saving us from. It is not just come to Jesus and have a nice life and get to heaven. It is come to Jesus and be saved from your sin and from eternity in hell. And he will give you abundant life. God calls his church to faithfulness to his whole word. Not just the bits we like, not just the bits we agree with. And I get into trouble for this. I go and preach to places, and and, and honestly, I can see it in their faces. I preached somewhere recently to a couple of hundred youth pastors, and they said it was like a grenade had been thrown into the room. Because all morning they'd been massaged and told how, you know, and I came in and I spoke about boldness and how we need to be bold and how the the culture's trying to shape the minds of our young people regarding sexuality. And honestly, half the room were really just did not want to hear it. Because they knew with their kids that would make them less popular. So let's just play games with them. And let's just play, you know, chubby bunnies and stupid games like that. Rather than confront them with the reality of God's word. And yet I cannot get away from what the Bible teaches. We live the word, we preach the word, we share the word. And we teach the whole of God's word. And it provokes a reaction. As we finish up today, we're going to see that. Chapter 11, verses 3 to 6. I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during that time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So here we have these two witnesses. We don't know who they are. People try to guess who they are. We don't know. All we know is that they're two witnesses of God. They're two witnesses of Christ. They're in Jerusalem, the center of where a lot of this takes place. And they're going to illustrate what John has just been told, that God's word is both sweet and bitter. They prophesy for 1,260 days, that's three and a half years. In other words, it's for a period of time, but not forever. They're wearing sackcloth, that's what was worn by Old Testament prophets to show repentance and humility. We're a repentant church, we're a humble church, we're not an arrogant church. That's the church that's going to impact the world. Not a proud, arrogant church, but a humble 
church who repents and lives out what they believe, but it is also a super supernatural spirit-filled church. This image of the two olive trees and the two lampstands comes from the prophetic book of Zechariah. And the olive oil represents the Holy Spirit that is constantly flowing into the lamps. In other words, the Holy Spirit is constantly flowing in to the people of God, filling them, filling them, filling them. They never run empty. And there's a supernatural power. The miraculous happens. Look at what it says. They can shut up the heaven so it doesn't rain. Who's that a picture of in the Old Testament? Who shut up the heavens for three and a half years? Elijah shut up the heavens for three and a half years. They can turn water into blood and strike the earth with plagues. Who did that in the Old Testament? Moses, the great leader who came against Pharaoh and demonstrated the power and authority of God. And just as God's power and authority were released in the Old Testament to bring down the evil kingdom of Ahab and to bring down the evil kingdom of Pharaoh, so God is going to fill his people with supernatural power and divine authority to see every kingdom and every empire opposed to Jesus come down. The church cannot shrink back. We cannot hide behind the four walls of the church just waiting for Jesus to return. We cannot be timid and afraid. We must be humbly confident. We cannot compromise. We must stand up with boldness and proclaim the word of God. We must prophesy what God says. And we must display his supernatural power as his spirit flows through us in signs and wonders. We preach the gospel. We demonstrate the kingdom. And as we do that, look what happens. First of all, it's resisted. Now, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes from the abyss will attack them. That's Satan. And overpower them and kill them. So there's a clash of kingdoms. The church will will look like it's finished. God's people will lay down their lives. The church will look like it's gone. And you know, for the last 2,000 years, many times it looked like the church was dead. It looked like the church was finished. People keep prophesying. These pundits, these researchers keep saying, in 20 years there will not be any more church. In 50 years the church will be no more. And what keeps happening? The church is growing. The church is thriving throughout the world. It is unstoppable. There's even been people who, believe it or not, in our short history, have wanted this church not to exist. But Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They cannot prevail against it. Why? Because it belongs to Jesus. And look at what happens in Revelation verses 11 to 13. But after three and a half days, these two guys have been killed. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood to their feet and terror struck those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while all their enemies looked on. And it says that everybody in the world watches them lying there for three and a half days. That can only be on TV, I think. I imagine these two guys lying there. Nobody goes near them. And every sky channel and every satellite channel is watching them just to see what happens. And then after three and a half days, they start to move. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake. A tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. God resurrects his people. God raises up his people. He brings them to be with him. And as these two kingdoms clash, there's an earthquake. Literally, there's to, there's the, the pressure builds up. And there's casualties. 7,000 are killed. But look at what it says. 
the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The fear of God fell upon the people at last. God did what he had to do. He warned them, he warned them, he warned them. He even let his people suffer and die. And in the end, their sacrifice, the blood of the martyrs, made people turn around and repent of sin and turn to God. Jesus said this to his church before he went to heaven, you will be my witnesses. That word is martus, from which we get martyr. You will be a bunch of people who will lay down your lives for my kingdom. And our message is sweet to some, and to others is bitter, and that's okay. But we will not water it down. We will not compromise it. We will not make the Bible say something it doesn't say. We will not shrink back and be shy from the world. We will witness with boldness and humility, with power and authority, with love and service. And if we need to lay down our lives, so be it as long as some people come to know Jesus. A story or two as we finish. I don't know if you've ever heard of Tilly Smith. I hadn't heard about her until recently. We'll all remember the Boxing Day earthquake and tsunami that took place in the Indian Ocean, Boxing Day 2004. Killed over 250,000 people. But what I didn't know was on a beach in Thailand that day, there was a little 10-year-old British girl called Tilly Smith. She was on holidays with her parents over the Christmas holidays. And just two weeks before this, Tilly had been in school in England. And they'd been learning about, in geography, about earthquakes and tsunamis. And on the day of the earthquake, as the water began to, to bubble and to rush away from the shore, everyone went towards it. Everyone wanted to see what was going on. Everybody was fascinated by the sight. But Tilly saw it and immediately remembered what she had learned in geography two weeks before. And she said to her mommy, I think there's going to be a tsunami. We need to get off the beach. And they started shouting and screaming at everyone, get off the beach. There's going to be a tsunami. Get off the beach. Danger. We need to run. We need to get away from this. Some people ignored her. She's just a little girl. Why would you listen to her? But a hundred people listened to her and ran to safety. And minutes later, the water surged right over the beach and demolished everything and killed everything in its path. But a hundred lives were saved because Tilly knew the signs, and she raised the alarm. She didn't just care about herself for her own safety. She wanted to let others know as well. And in the light of what we know, the most loving thing we can do is warn people. It's the most loving thing we can do is to tell people about Jesus. It doesn't mean we need to wear sandwich boards and, and have loud healers. It means we just take the opportunities this week and work over coffee, as we're driving with our friends, as we're at the gym, as we're wherever we are, just to say, you know what, what tell me about your faith. I, I did it recently with somebody. I just said, tell me about your faith journey, and they told me about just their background. They're not a Christian. And, and they, were real, they were so much more open than I'd expected them to be. And I think as God's people, the most loving thing we can do is to seek Jesus and share Jesus. Because look at how the story ends. Verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. 
and he will reign forever. We live in the present from the future. We live not for victory, but from victory. We know what happens. And it's our job to sound the alarm, to blow a trumpet, and let a desperate, sinful, sick world know Jesus is coming. People, get ready.